So my name is Carol Palmer and I'm the director of CBRL. For those of you unfamiliar with us, the Council for British Research in the Levant, we are one of the British International Research Institutes um, affiliated with the British Academy in London. Um, and through the British Academy, we receive a grant in aid um, to support our activities, but we're also grateful to all of the organizations and individuals who support us as members um, to do extra activities and our outreach, such as events like this. Um, we have an office in London at the British Academy. Um, and we also have an office, uh, an institute in Amman, also known as the British Institute in Amman, and an institute in East Jerusalem known as the Kenyan Institute. Um, we hope that you will enjoy today's webinar and that you will join us for future events um, and also take a look at our website to see our other activities, the other research that we sponsor and are affiliated to, and, um, and look out for future events. And also, please don't forget to um, subscribe to our channel, CBRL Video on YouTube and um, CBRL Sound on Sound. Cloud. We have quite a strong back catalogue for you to investigate. So our speaker um, today is Dr. Anzunz, who is a lecturer in anthropology of development at the University of Edinburgh. She is an economic anthropologist with a focus on the intersections of labour and forced migrations and gender in the Mediterranean. Since 2015, Anne has conducted fieldwork with displaced Syrians in Jordan, Turkey, Bulgaria, and is actually currently in Tunisia. She's speaking to us from Tunisia, where she is currently holding a visiting fellowship at the Merian Center for Advanced Studies in the Maghreb, Mikam um, in Tunis. Um, where she's also continuing her research um, on Syrian refugees in, in this time in the context of North Africa. I might just add a personal note if I can from CBRL. Um, Anne is well known to us as she uh, won a, a CBRL Arabic scholarship with the Kalsid Arabic Institute uh, while a PhD student several years ago and also won, was the winner of the Contemporary Levant 2018 Best Article Prize. And I'd just like to take a moment to congratulate Anne on uh, another prize-winning article that she's recently uh, been awarded with the Syrian Studies Association on refugees, transna uh, transnational livelihoods and remittances in the Journal of Refugee Studies. Congratulations, Anne, again. Um, I'll introduce our respondent um, now so that we can dive straight into discussions. Dr. Neil Howard is lecturer in international development at the University of Bath. His research focuses on the governance of exploitative and so-called unfree labor, and in particular, the various forms of it targeted for eradication by the sustainable development goals. Um, he conducts ethnographic um, research and participatory action with people defined as victims of trafficking, slavery, child labor, and forced labor, 
and political anthropological research on the institutions that seek to protect them. And he's going to be providing us with a, a more global perspective. He, he currently leads an ERC starting grant that aims to trial both action and research and unconditional cash transfers as potential policy responses to indecent or exploitative work in Hyderabad, India. Um, finally, Neil founded and is one of the editors of the Beyond Trafficking and Slavery section at Open Democracy. So with that, um, I'm going to invite uh, Anne to speak and to give her lecture. And thank you very much. So we'll just have a changeover of presentations. All right. Well, thank you so much for the kind words and for the introduction, Carol. I'll just bring up my screen quickly. Um, and I hope you can see my screen right now. Okay, well, it's my, it's my pleasure to at least virtually come back to the British Institute in Amman today. As Carol already said, I'm joining you from Tunis today. As she also mentioned, I've known the British Institute in Amman since I was a PhD student. And over the years, I've received a tremendous amount of support, both from the institution, but also from its director, Dr. Carol Palmer. So I'm delighted to be with you today to present my follow-up research. So in this lecture, I will revisit the notion of unfree labor through the study of refugee workers in Middle Eastern agriculture. And I will present findings from the HSE-funded Refugee Labor Under Lockdown project, which we conducted in 2020-2021, drawing on interviews with Syrian agricultural workers, intermediaries, and employers in four countries in the Middle East, Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, and Syria. And the point I'm going to make in my lecture is pretty straightforward. We need to understand better what processes trap Syrian refugees in the Middle East in exploitative labor and what social relationships keep them there. And in this lecture, I will zoom in on one sector where a lot of Syrian refugees work informally and which has been particularly affected by COVID-19 related movement restrictions, and that is agriculture. And in particular, I will attend to the specific kind of unfreedom that many Syrians refugees experience while working in agriculture. How is it that during the pandemic, um, badly paid and often, frankly speaking, dangerous jobs in agriculture remain many displaced Syrians only option? What are the factors that shape the particular type of unfreedom that displaced Syrians experience in the workplace? In this lecture, I suggest that we use refugee labor as a prism to understand the interplay of three different elements. The structural marginalization of refugees and refugee hosting countries in the Middle East, dynamics and globalized agricultural economies, and the cultural and historical conditions which might be specific to the Syrian experience. I aim to show that the ILO definition of forced labor may not capture Syrian refugees experience of unfreedom, which comes out of the interaction of neoliberal businesses that need cheap and mobile workers, and restrictive asylum policies in Middle Eastern host countries that produce these kinds of workers. Through an ethnographic approach, I will also try to make visible how workers, how refugees end up being recruited into such globalized agricultural economies, and that is through kinship lines. In other words, the ethnographic data that I'm going to present today are not only relevant to the pandemic, even though they were collected during the first year of the COVID-19 crisis. Rather, they hint at a perpetual state of crisis, 
precarity and uncertainty that refugees in the Middle East experience, especially in informal labor markets. In this regard, I suggest we move beyond the idea of the COVID-19 pandemic as a crisis and instead highlight problematic continuities that the pandemic has brought to light, especially with its new focus on the role of so-called essential workers. So what am I going to do in action? I'll briefly introduce our research methods and sample, and then I'll juxtapose the LO definition of forced labor and findings from the refugee labor under lockdown project. And I will show to you that while the ILO's definition of forced labor emphasizes acts of coercion by individual employers, um, individual employers, I will build on insights from modern slavery studies on the role of economic necessity and the lack of economic and employment alternatives to formulate a broader understanding of refugees and freedom. In the final section of my talk, I will come back um, to our ethnographic findings on kinship. How do actually refugees actually end up in this kind of work? How do they end up in the agricultural sector? In the conclusion, I will make some suggestions about how these insights can help us reframe current debates on refugee labor and more generally on the role that refugees can play in the formulation of development policies in the Middle East. Now, let me quickly introduce you um, to the refugee labor under lockdown project. And I should really um, I should really emphasize here that what I'm presenting is the result of tremendous teamwork. So when I'm speaking to you today, I'm really speaking in the name of our entire team. The Refugee Labour Under Lockdown project brought together researchers at the University of Edinburgh, and in particular from the One Health Field Network, with Syrian academics who supported the Council for At-Risk Academic Syria program, and who have now branched out into the Syrian Academic Expertise NGO and Turkish researchers who are affiliated with a non-for-profit cooperative development workshop. So you see that this is a project that was really only possible because we worked across countries and continents at a time of very strict lockdown restrictions, which not only um, stopped um, researchers from traveling, but also um, would have made it very difficult for us to meet participants in the field. The Refugee Labour Under Lockdown project aimed so to document how COVID-19 related movement restrictions and the economic knock-on effects of the pandemic have changed working conditions for displaced Syrians in agriculture in the Middle East, namely in Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey, and in opposition-held territories in Northern Syria, because these are territories that we have access to through our Syrian colleagues from the Kara Syria program. Um, I should also add that all the research for this study was conducted remotely, so it did not ex involve actual travel. Through WhatsApp, we conducted inter remote interviews with 80 Syrian agricultural workers, 20 intermediaries, and 20 employers in the four study countries. And I'll say a bit more about the demographic, about the socioeconomic profile of this particular demographic. In addition to conducting WhatsApp interviews, we also and we also invited all Syrian workers in the study to share with us what we call remote ethnographic diaries. So put more simply, more plainly, we invited them to use WhatsApp to, docu to document their working lives um, through pictures and videos and share these with us for the duration of a week or a bit longer. And that was really important because it gave us a much better sense of the lived experience um, and the cultural and social specificities and the family life of refugee workers um, in 2020 and in um, early 2021. 
Um, before I move on, I also wanted to acknowledge um, the amazing drawings that you already saw on my first slide and you will see later on in my presentation. All of these drawings were prepared by the Edinburgh-based artist Sophia Nielsen, who's been working with us for the project and in particular has produced a graphic novel that's called May God Bless the Hand That Works. And all the ethnographic material of, that we collected for the study has informed stories narratives in this graphic novel. It's freely available on our website, the One Health Field Network, so feel free to check it out. And as you can see on the map, um, this is what on the map, what we tried to do was to retrace um, where Syrian refugee workers in the study currently live and where they come from. And as you can see from the map, Syrian refugees right now are concentrated in Middle Eastern borders, which also happen to be areas of intense agricultural production. So for example, we're talking about Northern Jordan, um, the Eastern Lebanese border, the Bekaa Valley, and the South of Turkey. Not all refugees in the study live in camps far from that. Actually, we have a diverse, we have a variety of living situations where some respondents live in big cities like Irbit or Gaziantep. Some live in informal tent settlements, in particular in Lebanon. Others live in official, set in official camps um, for example, in Turkey, and some live in rural or semi-rural areas. Um, so we really see here a snapshot of different um, living and working constellations, but what all of the workers in this study have in common is that in one way or another, they are involved in agricultural production, be it working on the fields or in greenhouses. Now, let me tell you a bit more about the Syrian workers and intermediaries, but it's because it's these two types of, um, of demographics that I'm going to focus on in my talk. So as I said, we managed to interview 80 Syrian workers for the study, 20 per study country. Um, the majority of them are male. We do realize that there is a gender bias. The reason for that is that we try to interview heads of households who in most, in most families at least nominally are male. The reason for we were targeting heads of household is because we wanted to develop a better understanding of not just individuals' economics, but household economics. Most Syrian workers were in the mid-families they tend to have rather big families. They tend to come from rural areas in Syria. Many of them have worked as small scale farmers or agricultural laborers in the past, and they have rather low educational levels. So in the study, only one third of respondents had even school. Um, now, what is interesting, um, and I'm pointing this out because it will be relevant further on, is these people's registration status in host countries. Outside Syria, um, in Lebanon and Jordan, 100% of workers reported being registered with the UNHCR compared to only 32% in Turkey. This can be explained by the fact that in Turkey, refugee registration is organized a bit, a bit differently because the Turkish government is taking the lead here. 42% of workers outside of Syria reported having a valid permit to work in agriculture with differences across study countries. Yet, Let's take these findings with a grain of salt for different reasons. We checked with intermediaries. The intermediaries we studied, um, we in, involved in the study. So often also the intermediaries who work with it, who employ these workers. And most intermediaries confirmed that workers did not have work permits. So that means that workers might have over, um, might have indicated that they had work permits or they, had, they were allowed to legally work in agriculture um, when they actually weren't. Either because, either because they might have been afraid of repercussions um, that might have come from taking part in the study, or they might have been, might have been confused about whether 
their current legal situation in the host country would allow them to legally work in agriculture. I feel that this is particularly so for workers who used to work in agriculture in one of these countries before 2011, before they became refugees, um, especially workers in Lebanon who used to be migrant workers, often in a semi-informal situation, semi-legal or informal situations, and have now returned to work with the same employers and at the same work sites. But, um, and at the very least, I think it just indicates these, this, this between what Syrian workers say about work permits and what intermediaries say, um, at least indicates that there seems to be a considerable degree of confusion about who is legally allowed to work when and where. But does it even matter? In fact, none of the workers in the study had ever signed a formal contract with employers, nor had they ever been eligible for paid sick leave. Um, so we talk about workers who before 2011 and as refugees after 2011 have always worked in agriculture in a totally informal situation. Let's move on to the agricultural intermediaries. Um, all intermediaries in the studies were male, although we also heard about female intermediaries. Often female intermediaries tend to be spouses of male intermediaries, or they tend to be um, subordinate intermediaries who are specifically charged to take care of all female groups. And like Syrian refugee workers, most had had many years of experience working in agriculture. Um, in Syria and in Jordan, all intermediaries were Syrian. Apparently in Jordan, the whole institution of the intermediary was only introduced by Syrian refugees in agriculture after 2011. In Lebanon and in Turkey, three intermediaries per country were Syrian and two intermediaries per country had the nationality of the host country. In these cases, when you have a mix of host country and Syrian intermediaries, what we often found was that um, host country intermediaries um, were higher up in the hierarchy, but then they would employ um, subordinate intermediaries from refugee groups themselves. Out of the 15 Syrian intermediaries outside Syria, 11 were themselves refugees, and four were still working alongside displaced Syrians that they had recruited. And I'm highlighting this here um, because in the, um, because there is a tendency among policymakers and activists to vilify intermediaries as evil gang masters, as evil exploiters um, who take a huge cut from refugees' salaries um, and who lead a great life. But actually what we see is that in many cases, especially when intermediaries are also refugees, they are not much better situated, economically speaking, than refugees themselves. And in, and in fact, and this is something I will come back to later on, um, intermediaries themselves can end up highly indebted and in a difficult, precarious situation. Except for two Turkish intermediaries in Turkey, all intermediaries only hired Syrian workers. So we look at the very specific refugee workforce here. Um, the fact that inter most intermediaries only hired Syrian workforces also speaks to the relationship of trust um, and sometimes of kinship ties between intermediaries and workers. And again, this is something I'm going to come back to at the end of my talk. Now, please bear with me. Um, um, I'm going to deal with like the more contextual, the more conceptual side of this um, presentation at the beginning, and then I'm going to talk more. Um, I'm going to talk more about our actual findings. But I just wanted to begin by quickly discussing um, a number of interlocking systems that all shape how shape refugee labor in the Middle East. The first factor I would like to pretty quickly introduce is the structural marginalization of refugees in Middle Eastern host countries. As you might know, 
uh, most of Syrians 5.6 refugees have not gone to Europe. They have remained in neighboring countries in the Middle East, with, which are either not signatory to the Geneva Convention refugees, such as Jordan, Lebanon, Iraq, or that are signatories to the Geneva Convention, but do not recognize Syrians as refugees under the convention that applies to Turkey, which signed the Geneva Convention, but not the, 19, um, but not the later protocol that lifted the geographic limitations. In practice, that means that in Middle Eastern host countries, refugees are subjected to varying forms of registration that, that create new and complex forms of illegality with limited access to formal employment, public services, mobility across borders, and sometimes even mobility within host countries. Not all of the countries in the study require refugees to obtain permits to work in agriculture, but as I already said, farming is a hugely unregulated sector where most Syrians work informally without health insurance or labor rights. Now, I would like us to take a moment and just rethink um, what this structural marginalization of refugees does. Forced migration scholars um, have argued that we should not accept refugees' legal lingo as just a side effect of bad governments. Instead, Sage says that we should scrutinize um, refugee hosting countries' strategic use of legal ambiguity to control displaced um, people. So the structural marginalization is not actually just a side effect of bad governments, it can be a political tool. And in particular, a tool that allows host countries to control displaced populations without talking about more long-term um, long solutions to settlement, um, without talking about naturalization, for example. Um, but it's also a tool, I would argue, that has economic benefits for host countries because it produces cheap workers for national economies. And of course, when it comes to the relationship between illegality, mobility and labor, there are important parallels between refugee struggles and the situation of many migrant workers in the world who might find themselves under temporary migration regimes. In fact, states around the globe use legal mechanisms to govern mobile population that they consider desirable as workers, but not as potential citizens. And I suggest that that is a similar situation that we're, that we're seeing here. Of course, having some kind of temporary legal status, the way Syrian refugees have, who are, re who are recognized as guests in many Middle Eastern host countries, means that it, they have a reduced bargaining power vis-a-vis -vis employees and intermediaries and that they're more at risk um, of labor exploitation, debt relationships, and dependency on others. Um, so that first factor, this is the first aspect I would like you to keep in mind. Um, it's a strategic use of legal limbo, of legal ambiguity that puts Syrian refu refugees in a situation of, um, of ex potentially exploitative labor long before the COVID-19 pandemic. The second factor I would quickly like to touch on is, um, is our current shifts in humanitarian action and also in humanitarian discourse. So as Jeff Crisp recently argued in his latest piece in the Journal of Refugee Studies, the Syrian refugee crisis and mass displacement in the Middle East have shifted operational realities on the ground and also led to major paradigm shifts in the international community and international humanitarian discourse. On the one hand, 
we see that it's increasingly difficult for refugees to get to Europe or to get to the global north. Um, we've witnessed the externalization of EU borders, the emergence of new fences, shady deals between EU countries and refugee hosting countries in the global south. But at the same time, we've also seen a shift towards enhancing refugee self-reliance in C2 in the global south, in particular, um, to, uh, in particular through um, advantages trail, trade deals between countries like Jordan and the EU um, and through vocational schemes. And as um, many of you will already know, um, the success of schemes like the 2016 Jordan Compact, which was supposed to get hand to formalize refugee labor for hundreds of thousands of refugee workers inside Jordan has been rather limited due to red tape, due to a mismatch between refugee workers' qualifications and the kind of labor needs of Jordanian economy, um, and also because of a mismatch with re refugees' own expectations of um, about what counts as decent um, what counts as decent work. Um, so please, when I'm talking about refugee labor and potential exploitation, also figure this in the context against the backdrop of these incre this increasing humanitarian push towards getting refugees into formal labor markets, in particular through giving them work permits. The third and fourth, fourth factor I would like to discuss only quickly are the reliance of Middle Eastern agriculture on migrant labor, but also simultaneously the region's reliance on food inputs from outside the region. Um, so on the one hand, and that's again a development which largely predates um, the COVID-19 pandemic, Middle Eastern agriculture has been increasingly increased, um, included into global supply chains. Um, and one way in which local employers have reacted um, to economic pressures is by cutting labor costs. And in particular, by employing migrant and female, migrant and female workers. And this is, um, um, many of you will know that um, in the decades before the Syrian civil war, men, um, millions of Syrians were already, were already seasonally migrating to Lebanon, to Jordan and to the Gulf to seek employment as migrant labor and to complement precarious livelihoods in rural areas and in working class areas inside Syria. So migration um, for many Syrians, including for the people in the study and migrant work, work in agriculture is not actually something new. I just wanted to draw your attention to the picture on this slide. What you can see here is a picture I took in Adana province in Turkey in December 2019, so right before the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and you can see here tents which are inhabited by farm workers during the citrus harvest. Um, and what's interesting here is that at first sight, you cannot actually detect who lives inside these tents. It could be Syrian refugee workers. It could also be domestic Kurdish workers. And what I'm trying to get with is that in many situations in Middle Eastern agriculture, the people Syrian refugees are competing with are not locals. There will often be other migrants, either international migrants, say Egyptians in Jordan, or domestic migrants, say Kurdish workers um, in say Kurdish workers in Turkey. Um, and this is relevant um, because both refugee and migrant workers, um, both refugee and migrant workers, um, fill a particular slot in these increasingly globalized agricultural economies, and in particular, they fulfill the need for a cheap, exploitable, and rightless workforce. And finally, and I'll only mention this um, very briefly, we also talk about um, a situation where the entire region for deep decades um, has been highly reliant on food imports, in particular cereal imports, um, cereal imports um, 
from the outside. Um, and food security in the entire region have, has, of course, decreased, in particular with the Syrian civil war. Two years before the pandemic, more than 5 million Syrians inside Syria were already food insecure. And that has also had major spillover effect on neighboring countries like Lebanon, which imports a staggering 90% of its cereals. That is important um, to understand, to situate refugee labor and agriculture, because in previous studies at the beginning of the pandemic, we found that although many refugees work in agriculture, that's not actually where they get their food from. Syrian refugee workers who work in agriculture tend to not get their food from employers. They tend to buy their food from local markets, which means that they are particularly susceptible to price hikes in global economies. Um, and that also means that their financial safety nets are quickly eroded if food becomes more expensive. So on a final note, before I move on to the actual data, I would also like you to consider the interconnected nature of these food systems in which supply chain disruptions, refugee workers, legal ambiguity, and volatile labor markets um, all work together to make those who are at the very front line of food production um, go hungry. And all of this means that at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, Syrian refugees working in agriculture were already in a vulnerable position. Um, now let's move on to the data of the refugee labor under lockdown project. What did we actually find? We found that amongst the 80 workers in our study, 75% of workers lost their jobs, but they only lost them temporarily. temporarily. This is important because it means that pandemic-related movement restrictions and lockdowns um, didn't just mean that workers um, became unemployed on a permanent basis. It's rather that they were affected by temporary job losses, um, decreased working hours and decreased income. Um, in winter 2020, 83% of workers found it more difficult to find jobs in agriculture compared to before the pandemic, but they also kept looking for jobs in agriculture, which means that even during the COVID-19 pandemic, agriculture labor remained Syrians only option, but at the same time, job insecurity in these already volatile labor markets had increased. Um, it also means that the refugees' bargaining power towards agricultural intermediaries employers had further decreased and that refugees were now forced to accept whatever working conditions were offered to them. So in our study, we found that almost 40% of workers said that employers intermediaries had not introduced COVID-19 safety measures. Of course, no workers benefited from paid sick leave or the like. In many ways, agricultural production in the Middle East continued as it had before the pandemic, which means that workers were transported to the fields in on overcrowded buses. There was no mask wearing, no hand disinfectants, no social distancing and yes refugees and yet refugees kept doing these jobs because they were the only jobs available to them and syrian households in the study coped by cutting costs selling belongings and getting a loan and this again um this again um tells us that syrian refugees entered the pandemic um already with no or very little safety nets um because they had very little to sell and they had very little savings to spend 
It also, we also found that most households in the study did not remit, receive remittances from elsewhere and that their social support networks in the study countries were either non-existent or had been eroded through years of precarity. So we look at Syrian refugees um, who are again compelled to take on certain kind of jobs because there's no other way, there's no other group of people can support them. What does that mean for the degree of freedom of their labor? Does refugee labor count as forced labor in the sense of the International Labor Organization? Now, just to remind you of um, how the International Labor Organization um, defines forced labor. It defines forced labor as all work or service which is extracted from any person under the threat of a penalty and for which the person has not offered himself or herself voluntarily. So there are two important aspects here. One is the, the presence of punitive measures. You get punished if you don't do the job. The other one is the element of coercion. Coercion, someone actually forces you to do the kind of job. Um, and what we, these were all, these were aspects we were interested um, to look into, especially because many refugees had reported their, that their relationships with um, employers and intermediaries um, had become more unequal. So in the study, we used a number of indicators that the ILO uses to measure forced labor. Um, for example, um, for example, um, threats of actual physical harm, movement, debt bondage, withholding of wages, retention of identity documents, and denunciation of irregular workers to authorities. And what's really interesting here is that the actual data show a complex story where at first sight, the data do not seem to fit the ILO's understanding of forced labor. All refugee workers in our study confirmed that employers did not usually confiscate workers' identity documents. 50% confirmed that there would be no negative consequences if they left their jobs early. And in fact, we only heard of three instances among AD Syrian households where workers had experienced actual physical harm. All of these three instances were in informal tent settlements in Lebanon. Um, in one case, a Syrian woman reported that her tent had been burned down by an angry employer. And that might not surprise you, um, given that, um, especially towards the end of last year, there were a number of racist incidents often by local populations against refugee workers in Lebanon. But the overall consensus among respondents in the study is that there would be no negative consequences at the hands of employers if they left their jobs early. Only two Syrian workers in Turkey said that they were unable to complain because they did not have work permits. So again, their own legal situation did not seem to trouble refugee workers. And perhaps not surprisingly, in the absence of punitive measures, 36% of workers said that they would abandon jobs if they did not like the conditions or the pay. So in other words, they said that they would leave, they would vote with their feet. We finish one day's work and the second day, if we don't like it, we don't go to work. That doesn't mean that refugees actually change jobs all the time. In fact, 22% of workers felt that leaving was not an option. 17% of workers were unable to find work elsewhere and 8% were afraid that they would not be paid if they left early. So again, remember what I told you about it, um, refugees struggling to find work during the first year of the pandemic in a situation where an already volatile labor market had become even more insecure. And at the time of the study, which was conducted in autumn and throughout the winter of 2020-21, um, seasonal dynamics also exacerbated this dependency on 
on undecent work. So for example, a woman in Hatay, Turkey told us that we depend on the seasonal labor because we don't always find work in winter and work is the only way we can make a living. In other words, um, refugees who know that they will only have an income um, half of the year are forced to take on these kind of jobs because they know they also have to make savings for the agricultural off season. Um, but just to um, recap again, we're not looking at the situation where refugees were actually physically coerced into taking on these agricultural jobs during the pandemic. Rather, it's the surplus of labor and the experience of job insecurity that ties Syrians to these kind of jobs. And they hardly had to be coerced into taking or retaining this job. On the contrary, we're talking about the situations where Syrian refugees were competing with each other to get these kind of jobs and were thus willing to accept even badly paid and dangerous um, working conditions. Now let's dig a bit more into the relationship with agricultural intermediaries. Um, and here we actually find some aspects of refugee work, which do bring us back to the ILO definition um, of forced labor, particularly when it comes to debt bondage and the withholding of payments. 34% of workers in the study said that employers or intermediaries could withhold payments with even higher numbers for Syrian refugees in Lebanon. The, and the practice of both advance payments, but also withholding payments and mixing wages and expenses entrapped, often entrapped Syrian refugees and intermediaries in a debt spiral, not only for refugees, but also sometimes for intermediaries. And I put a, a lengthy quote on the slide, which I encourage you um, to read by yourself. It's a quote by a 55-year-old Syrian intermediary who resides in Kap Ilyas in eastern Lebanon. And he has uh, an informal tent settlement that's home to 67 Syrian refugees who are also his workers. And importantly, the Syrian intermediaries is not just the person who liaises with employers, who takes workers to the field, um, who hands out the payment. He is also their landlord. He also communicates with NGOs on their behalf. And he also provides food, which means that him and the workers are involved in multiple complex financial relationships. So why do intermediaries only pay refugees at the end of a, at the end of the season? So every couple of months, he also um, he also spends money on behalf of, of refugees, um, sometimes on a weekly basis, sometimes on a two weekly or monthly basis. For example, for bread, for electricity, and for water, and you end up with a financial budget situation with different expenses, different timelines. Um, which are often unpredictable, um, where intermediaries themselves end up highly indebted, but certainly so um, refugee workers. Now, I should say that not all refugees in the study had such a complex financial relationship with their intermediaries. Some refugees, of course, they find jobs without um, the help of intermediaries. Refugees who live in rental accommodation that they pay for themselves also tend to have a more simple relationship with intermediaries. Um, but what I just described to you, this kind of complex financial um, constellation of different types of delayed or advanced payments is particularly true of refugees who live in informal tent settlements and who are mobile and to migrate with their intermediaries throughout agricultural seasons. And for example, 37% of workers in Jordan, 25% of workers in Syria had received an advance payment. 75% of the intermediaries who interviews also confirmed that they offered advance payments 
um, to their workers. Now imagine this in a context in which of employment of opportunities have become scarce and more unpredictable, where 11% of workers reported being paid less frequently and 46% of workers were paid more irregularly than before the pandemic. And you end up with this very complicated financial conundrum that ties refugees to particular intermediaries. And I just wanted to look at these data, um, at these findings in the light of um, critiques from modern, modern slavery studies scholars and migration studies scholars um, that have on the nar a narrow understanding of forced labor. Um, first, what we saw in the initial ILO definition of forced labor is that it singles out extreme acts of labor, of, of labor exploitation. Whereas what comes close to these people's lives is particular are more common and maybe less clear-cut forms of precarious work. To be clear, not all refugees in the study experienced agricultural labor as exploitative or unfree. And working conditions may have also changed for the same individual throughout the pandemic. Um, what I'm trying to say is exploitation is probably often um, more realistically experienced as a continuum rather than a black and white experience. Second, the ILO definition explicitly excludes more structural forces that may compel a person to accept exploitative work. But as I've already argued, we're not just talking about um, extremely exploitative intermediaries or employers, but about people who are mere cocks in globalized agricultural econ economics economies that come with certain economic pressures, which are often put down, um, passed on to those who are at the very bottom of work hierarchies, and these are refugees. That means that binary understandings of labor forced versus um, voluntary migration may not always fit the experience of the Syrian refugees in the study. I already said before 2011, many Syrian refugees in the study migrated um, extensively throughout the Middle East, often to work as agricultural laborers. As we heard from um, respondents in the study, they have now returned to the same places they used to work in as migrants, but they have come back to refugees. They still work with the same employees and they often still work with the same intermediaries. And that is actually not uncommon. In displacement contexts around the world, we have similar experiences of migrants turned refugee workers, of migrants and refugees working alongside each other and of them moving together. There's no doubt that the people in the study have repeatedly experienced livelihood loss and that they have experienced forced migration. But that doesn't preclude the fact that they continue to take active decisions on where they want to work, who they want to work with, and they often choose to re remain with the same intermediaries with whom they have partnered for years. So for example, 88% of refugees using an intermediary in the study had worked with the same intermediary before, which tells that even if refugees may make negative um, experiences, they still choose to continue with the same intermediary. Um, so instead of considering some people as inherently free or unfree, we'd better ask how unfreedom is politically constructed. And that brings us back to restrictive asylum and migration politi um, politics that deprive workers of labor rights and access, um, and access um, to the former labor market. So to paraphrase Genevieve Liberian, displaced Syrians may lack the power um, may lack the power to say no to certain jobs during the pandemic, and they may lack the power to stop doing them 
particularly in a situation where, as I've said, their meager financial nets, safety nets were eroded at the very beginning of the pandemics, but labor markets even became even more volatile. Now, on a final note, um, and that'll be my uh, final contribution today, I just wanted um, to tell you a second story about Syrian refugees in agricultural labor. Until now, I've presented their struggles as part of a broader story about how different types of marginalized people are drawn into global supply chains. And in this regard, the case of Syrian refugees in agriculture that I have described here is probably not very special. It's actually quite similar to what Mexican migrant workers experience in California or what West African migrants experience in the tomato harvest in Italy. And I think that Neil Howard might be talking about this, this a bit later. But as an anthropologist, I would say that there is a second story or a complementary story underneath, which is about culture and the intimate underbelly of capitalism. And in this fact, in this story, the fact that these refugee workers are Syrians really, really matters um, because the way that refugee make, refugees make family, experience mobility and experience agricultural work are actually vital to understanding how capitalism is reproduced. When we think of global supply chain capitalism, we tend to think of processes of economic, political and ecologic ideological standardization. Everything becomes the same around the world. It starts looking the same. However, what I would like to do here is to develop a proposition that was first made by the anthropologist Anat Singh about the importance of diversity in, in global supply chain capitalism. Anat Singh argues that supply chain capitalism capitalizes on existing socioeconomic niches, and it also creates new forms of diversity. This means that diversity, and all this historical and cultural and baggage that refugees come with is not just incidental, but it's actually vital to the functioning and the expansion, expansion of supply chain capitalism. Now, what does that mean in the Middle Eastern context? Um, anthropologists of the Middle East have long ethnographically documented how people function and how people share resources, which is often through kinship networks. That's particularly important to Syrian refugees, and that's something I've been working on for years. We know that many Syrians, when they became displaced during the Syrian conflict, um, fled together with family members. They often went to places where they already had a family connection. And in exile, they continued to access jobs and they continued to access resources, such as remittances, through extended kinship networks. So family really, really matters. But family and kinship actually also matter to how Middle Eastern agriculture works, and in particular, how to how day laborers are recruited into this kind of employment. I already told you what intermediaries do. Intermediaries are the kind of people who, um, who recruit the workers, um, who find jobs with the employers, who organize transport, say pickups and buses to take workers to the fields. They supervise work on the fields. They take the workers home. Um, they deal with the payment and they also deal with conflicts and complaints on fields and in greenhouses and so on. But what's also important to understand is that intermediaries often come from refugees extended kinship networks. In this study, we found that only in 15% of families, intermediates were close um, family members with refugees. Um, but, they are also, but they are often people who are well known to refugees because, for example, they come from the same village, the same social circle, the same friendship circle. 
which means that you can only understand the relationship between intermediates and refugees if you also include a language of kinship and belonging and patriarchal obeisance. Um, in our study, 42% of refugees responded that they could not find jobs without intermediaries. And what they meant was that they often struggled to meet employers personally because employers um, because employers prefer to deal with one intermediary instead of a big group of workers. And in countries like Turkey, um, refugees also deal with the linguistic barrier. But the much higher worker of refugees actually relied on intermediaries to find jobs. In our study, 61% of workers relied on intermediaries. Um, eight, as I said, 88% of, um, of of refugees using intermediaries had worked with the same intermediary before, and 71% of workers described their relationship with intermediaries as good or very good. That is important because it goes against the grain of what policymakers and anti-human trafficking activists tell us about intermediaries as evil gang masters. Clearly, what we see here is a much more complex personal um, and emotional relationships. And again, I refer you to this lovely quote, um, that I put on this slide. It's a quote by a 50-year-old um, Lebanese intermediary who works with Syrian refugees, again, in Eastern Lebanon. And he describes the personal relationship, um, the shared sentiment and the idea of kinship and belonging um, that he has developed with these workers. As he said, our relationship is no longer one between a shawish, that is a, an intermediary, and the workers. I consider that all of us are people of the same country now. What he also means is that these are people um, who live in the same village as he do. He's, they are people he frequents every day, not just for organizing the work, but because they often share meals together. And another intermediary in the study, also from Lebanon, told us when the young girls from the camp talk about him, they call him their father and they consider themselves the daughters of the Shawish because the Shawish not only brokers employment, he even finds them husband. So all of this to say, um, that intermediaries and refugees may be tied to each other through these complex financial relationships, which I already mentioned, but also through other things, um, including this shared language and these shared sentiments of kinship and belonging. And as Neil Howard has argued in the context of migrant labor in Italy, intermediaries are often unjustly vilified when actually they are facilitated of an unjust system rather than as architects, rather than architects um, of systemic injustice. Um, so I think it's important for us to understand um, the role of complex relationships that intermediaries and refugees develop in the field and how this allows for the recruitment of refugees um, into increasingly globalized economies. So I know I've been speaking for a very long time, so I'll come to a conclusion now. Um, I just, um, just to recap very quickly, um, I've been trying to argue that um, that have been trying to de-exceptualize refugee labor in the sense that it is not an anomaly outside of normal economies. In fact, if we adapt a political economy approach, we understand that cheap and exploitable refugee labor is central to how capitalist economies work. I've also tried to link refugee labor to specific historical and cultural conditions, in particular the backstory of Syrian migration in the Middle East and the social institution of the Shawish. And I would just like to end with three provocative questions, which I hope will allow us to enter um, into a discussion and will allow us to reformulate the debate on refugee labor in the Middle East. Um, my first question is, is refugee inclu refugees inclusion into global economies the solution? And I already said that 
during the Syrian refugee crisis, um, a lot of humanitarians in the international community have promoted free market solutions, solutions to uh, making Syrian livelihoods or making refugee livelihoods less precarious, in particular through the Jordan Compact, which is also now being replicated, for example, by refugees in Ethiopia. Um, as I've been trying to show you, um, refugees' inclusion into global economies does not always um, address the issue of their vulnerabilities. In fact, in many cases, actually exacerbates existing vulnerabilities on the ground, which makes me wonder whether refugees' inclusion into global economies is part of the solution or might not just become part of the problem. The second question I would like you to leave with is, is formalizing refugee labor um, the solution. As I already said, all of this is happening in the context where refugees still, at least in the study, still work informally, but where a lot of host governments, international donors, and humanitarian agencies push for formalizing refugees in particular through work permits. Now, the Middle East is full of other examples where you have migrant workers who indeed do have formal work permits and visa and still end up working under very exploitative um, conditions. Just think of the kafala, the sponsorship system for migrant domestic workers, but also the situation of other migrant agricultural workers, for example, Egyptians or Pakistanis in Jordan. So that also makes us wonder whether the work permit is, or is indeed an easy solution to ending undecent work um, for refugees. And my final point um, is about perhaps reappraising the role refugees can play in these in these labor market integration schemes. It seems to me that a lot of humanitarian action I've seen on the ground over the last couple of years is all about upskilling refugees, in particular through constant short-term vocational trainings. And that was always supposed to make them a better fit for um, labor markets. Um, but the people in these study have actually all or most of them have worked in agriculture um, for many years, often for, often for decades. We talk about people who currently work under exploitative conditions, but yet they're certainly not unskilled workers, which makes me wonder whether instead of constantly upskilling and constantly framing refugees as people in need of upskilling, we should not just reappraise them of, as experts of their own livelihoods, namely agriculture and whether they should not be included as experts, not as beneficiaries in the formulation of development policies in the Middle East. And I think I'll stop here. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much indeed um, for that um, presentation um, on your fascinating work on, on the refugee labor under lockdown project. Um, with that, I'm going to um, hand over to Neil Howard to give a response um, thank you. to Anne's presentation. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. And thank you, Anne. That was super comprehensive, super interesting, a very, very rich project. Um, yeah, I mean, compliments, first and foremost. Um, the methodologically particularly cool. I, I, I really enjoy the idea of, and clearly the results of, um, WhatsApp-derived field diaries, um, obviously in interviews and, and, and surveys make sense, but the idea of, of using the digital media to get into some of the finer details of people's lived realities on a day-to-day -day basis is, is super cool. Um, and also very much a hat tip to your illustrator. When I was reading the, the full report before the article itself, I was blown away by, by, by some of the quality of, of the drawings through that. It was super professionally done. So. I appreciate you, you highlighting that. 
Um, thanks also to the, to the organizers, to CBRL for this. Um, smoothly done so far, let's hope it continues. Um, I'm gonna respond briefly, um, probably for about 10 minutes, um, in order to give um, folks who want to a chance to ask questions, to ask some myself. And what I'll say will principally echo some of the central points that uh, Anne has made, drawing on um, research from other contexts and particularly research that I have done in um, Southern Italy with um, African migrant workers in the tomato harvest. Um, I'll say a bit more about that in a moment. Um, I wanna begin by briefly sharing um, what I hope will be some reasonably humorous slides that relate to um, labor arm freedom, not to make light of exploitation or people's experiences of it, but really to emphasize just how ridiculous, um, how silly, frankly, the mainstream approach to unfreedom is. Um, the, the approach that as identified that is sort of upheld, codified within international law by the International Labour Organization, um, and obviously by the, by the governments that both fund the International Labour Organization and sign up to its norms. Um, so this sort of very much represents the hegemonic, clearly very liberal approach to what is and isn't forced or unfree labor in the global economy. And, and that links very clearly to um, accepted ideas about what we can do about it. Um, so I want to share my screen, however, is this thing open? Yes, it is, right, there we go. So I'm hoping you can see this and it will be large now. Um, okay, so, Everything that Anne said about the problems with the way that the ILO frames on freedom is 100% spot on, at least in my analysis. Um, I would go even further and, and emphasize that not only is it that the formal definition of forced labor um, is, is clearly very narrow, restrictive and individualistic, um, but the um, ILO's committee of experts, essentially the sort of like legal brain of the ILO, the, 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 the legal wonks who interpret the application of ILO norms, are on record, this is a published document um, of the ILO, making very, very clear that the compulsion to work in and of itself doesn't count as coercion. So the mere fact of having to work to make your living doesn't count as coercion as far as the ILO is concerned. Their understanding of coercion really is as simple as an individual baddie pushes some individual not baddie to do something that they don't want to do. So they very explicitly stated, which to me is remarkable and, and mind-blowingly um, mind blindly sad more than anything, um, that the, 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 the legal governing body, if you will, of the International Labour Organization, Labour Organization, lest we forget, is on record as saying that the coercion inherent in capitalist social relations in capitalism doesn't count, um, which is, I mean, yeah, it would be funny were it not so sad. Um, and at the same time, um, there, there's another element to, to, to this farce, um, which is that within standard and dominant discourse, as um, shared um, widely by the ILO, but also by mainstream institutions that are allied with the ILO, big anti-slavery organizations, obviously donor governments, particularly governments in the West, um, there is this sort of sister discourse that although coercion is one individual baddie um, doing an individual bad thing, kind of underpinning it all is poverty. So poverty is a root cause. You'll, you'll very much see this sort of whimpering liberal acknowledgement of the fact that um, 
being poor is really important in understanding our freedom. And these two are kind of go hand in hand in, in, in the mainstream understanding, in the mainstream approach, and therefore in mainstream responses. And they are, I think, highly contradictory in ways that um, I'll, I'll go on to hopefully um, show you with the slides that follow, but which um, fundamentally elide and dehistoricize poverty. In other words, the fact that some people don't have much or any money, and that matters crucially in capitalist um, society where money is everything. So I hope you can see this. Um, I'm trusting that you can. I find it terribly discombobulating that I can't see any heads. I can only see my own slides. So I'm just going to trust that you're also seeing them, but you could perhaps also see me. This is a still from the movie Old Brother, Where Art Thou, um, which is a still of a chain gang, perhaps the iconic image, if you will, of coerced or unfree labor. And you'll see on the right of your screen, a sheriff on a horse, a white guy with a gun. And on most of your screen, you'll see black prisoners who are um, essentially coerced into breaking rocks, either to lay the foundations for, for a road or for um, a, a railway line. Um, clearly, we can't run away because these guys have guns, right? In many respects, the archetypal image of unfreedom. If you run, you're shot. There, there, is, there is sort of little that is bearer in terms of coercion than that. How does that fit with the idea that poverty is in fact the root cause? Here, my artistic attempt at um, articulating poverty as the ball and chain you'll see at the bottom left hand of your screen, um, replacing the, 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 the physiological manifestation of coercion in this guy, right? So if in the discourse of unfree labor, typically this guy is coercing someone to do something. At the same time, there is this sister discourse that poverty is the root cause of everything. But obviously when poverty this abstract concept is the root cause of everything. Clearly the guy with guns has disappeared, right? So what do you do when the guy with guns has disappeared and you're in a chain gang? You run. But crucially, in the absence of any money, and this comes back to Anne's critical point, where are you gonna go? Necessarily, you're gonna end up going back to the chain gang. That's not gonna be terribly pleasant and you have no choice. Now, I will stop sharing. Again, I want to emphasize, I, say, I, I, I share this not to make light of exploitative labor relations or unfree relations, but to make light of just how silly the, um, the, 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 the welding together of these two discourses is because in individualizing our understanding of coercion and in individualizing our response to coercion, whilst at the same time acknowledging that abstract poverty matters, ultimately what I think the, the ILO and, and its, and its uh, sister agencies tends to do is depoliticize the fact that poverty is a structural phenomenon. The fact that you or I may have money and many of the refugee laborers that um, Anne has studied don't is a structural phenomenon. Their poverty is conditioned by the distribution of rights and resources within global society, including of course money. Um, that matters also at a, at a collective level, much in the way that, that Anne mentioned, in that structurally inhabiting a position of of non-access to resources or rights is not just something that I or you or someone else as an individual may experience, but rather groups of people, people categorized as refugees in this example, or as migrant laborers or as asylum seekers in other contexts. And their structural positionality is important because they are structurally located as groups without certain rights and resources in relation to global supply chains and global production. 
So essentially, at the foot of many global supply chains, certainly those um, which will which will begin in the with the agricultural commodities that um, are produced in the fields that Anne has studied, but also elsewhere in places that I have studied, at the very foot of these supply chains are large bodies of workers who, by virtue of their structural lack of access to resources and rights, end up um, in highly exploitable positions. So there. The fact of them being exploited critically is not simply an individual reality that is, is relational between the employer or the intermediary and them, but it's a structural phenomenon in relation, it, the, uh, the, that manifests as a relationship between their position, their location at the foot of the supply chain, and then of course the, the, the other layers of the, the supply chain which within agricultural commodities will typically go up to uh, major supermarkets of the kind that are commonly used in the West. Um, so moving on from that, just to say, Anne herself nodded to this, the, the findings from her research, from this research in the Middle East are very much echoed uh, across the board, certainly within um, North America and Europe. Um, my own research um, uh, three or four years ago uh, was with African migrant laborers in Southern Italy, in Foggia, um, Foggia is a sort of global center of tomato production um, and, and, and within agricultural commodity chains, particularly those which culminate um, on the shelves of massive supermarkets, there are a few things more iconographic, more iconic than the tomato, right? Um, many of us will have seen adverts of um, like Italian nonnas making pizza sauce and, 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 and bought passato and so on and so forth. Many of those tomatoes originate in the fields of Foggia. Most of them will be picked by migrant laborers, many of whom are African migrant workers who are either waiting for refugee status, have formal status as asylum seekers, perhaps have no status whatsoever. But critically, the conditions that they experience, the conditions in which they live, the conditions in which they work, the, the sort of meso level factors that explain what they experience, how, why, and with what alternatives are pretty much identical to, to those described by Anne. Um, so labor is hard. The image that um, Anne shared earlier of the, the tent in which um, workers um, live whilst they're in the fields, it can be paralleled across the fields of southern Italy. Um, there, there are within sort of in the midst of hundreds of square kilometers of, 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 of fields in uh, Basilicata uh, and around Foggia are essentially shanty towns which look not dissimilar and often much worse to those uh, to, to, that, to that picture of those tents where migrant workers um, can descend um, from all corners of Italy in search of what they can find um, uh, at, the, at the hands of um, local um, farmers and the intermediaries who are so critical to the harvest. Critically though, they also, as, as, as again was the case in, in what I'm presented, very often understand themselves and express themselves to be exercising choice in the work that they do. Even if they have no contracts, even if the work is really bloody hard and you know, it's 35, 36, 37 degrees um, Celsius in the summer when you're conducting a tomato harvest in Southern Italy, they nevertheless articulate themselves as having meaningfully chosen what they're doing because this was pretty much the best or the only choice that they had, which comes back to the previous point about the structurality of them not having other alternatives. In other words, it's useful, I think, to think of labor on freedom or the position of being unfree as, as inhabiting sort of a location within the social matrix that denies you or limits you available alternatives. 
and referenced the idea of freedom as the power to say no as an alternative and more expansive way of conceiving of freedom, which I certainly think is worth, worth doing. And I, and I think that uh, main, mainstream international responses to unfreedom are much poorer for not doing so. But if we do take freedom as the power to say no, then we can think of unfreedom and the unfreedom of folks who are nevertheless consenting to, to their exploitative labor um, as in a certain re respect about inhabiting a position, as I say, within the social matrix, which structurally limits the le level of alternatives or the number of alternatives that you have. A couple of other brief points and then, and then I'll stop. Intermediaries, in the research that I've conducted in Southern Italy, also in West Africa, in research that many, many others um, have conducted in, in, in Latin America, particularly on the Mexico-US border, the position of the intermediaries emerges not only as important, but again, as Anne um, mentioned, as, as very complicated. It really isn't the case that they are just these baddies. Very recently, a few days ago, there was a tragedy of um, many, many migrants dying in a dinghy um, crossing from France to, to the UK. And as is always the case when something like this happens, politicians trotted out the trope that evil traffickers and smugglers are at fault. What we know from a lot of research um, with intermediaries, whether they facilitate movement or they facilitate work, is that very often their positionality isn't one of abuse or exploitation. Very often it is one of actual social support. Um, a colleague of ours, uh, uh, Luigi Achille, has documented the subjectivity of um, intermediaries and, uh, and the ways in which they understand themselves almost as performing charitable functions if you will, because of the kinship networks, because of the relationships they have, because they are in similar um, socioeconomic um, and other circumstances, there is a responsibility to, to offer um, a, a leg up, if you will, or a leg across to those that they can. And that was certainly the case in the work that I did in Southern Italy, where intermediaries portrayed themselves as, as grand frères, big brothers who were there to help. And were often referred to in precisely the same ways by the people who, to whom they gave work. Um, we spent many of an afternoon, myself and my, my colleague, um, sipping beer in one of the, the bars in, in the, the biggest ghetto outside Foggia, and folks who had been working in the fields of the bar owner were then also just hanging out watching football. And many of the sort of evaluations were, were, were wholly positive, which isn't to say that they're always positive, nor is it to suggest that um, their positionality or their role within cycles of exploitation is not important. It's simply to say that it's not only that. Um, and indeed, uh, as, um, as has been documented in a number of other places, that in many respects, when you have no other alternatives, it's better to be exploited than not, because at least you're getting paid. This is critical. I, mean, I, I believe it was Castro who, who is, at least apocryphally, is said to have said that the only thing worse than being exploited by the capitalist is not being exploited by the capitalist. Um, and certainly in my research, it was when, I, when we asked folks, why are you not organizing? Why would you not collectively come together, withhold your labor and potentially see an increase in your, your returns? Across the board, we were told we can't. There's hundreds of others waiting to take our place, um, which again came across in the paper and the report that was attached to it. Um, the reserve army is, is so massive and, and structurally so useful to those who benefit from the low prices um, and the low wages that it uh, enables that what alternatives are available for self-organization amongst migrant workers are, are really, really limited. My last point then, what do you do, just to end on something mildly positive, um, 
I mean, there are many things, but the two that to me seem particularly important and that I tend to advocate are one, action research centered, low level grassroots, basic responses to people's living conditions. Um, if for no other reason than coming in with an intention to help and pre-existing ideas about how you're gonna do so often tends to end in disaster. Um, in Foggia where I worked, um, the, the, the local comune wanted to help the migrant workers who were living in the ghetto by basically demolishing it, which nobody wanted. And in the process of resisting, which some people died. Um, there are a few more tragic examples I can think of, of, of positive intentions gone wrong. And as many scholars of development will tell you or social policy will tell you, if you wanna help someone, ask them how they want to be helped. Don't come with a pre-existing idea. Um, the second uh, sort of important, I think no brainer arm when money is so important to relations, structures of exploitations is just give people money. There is now a very widely um, documented um, literature growing all of the time about the positive impacts, analyzing the positive impacts of unconditional cash within refugee contexts as well as without. Um, the benefits are, are literally across the board, um, not least because money is fungible. And if you give people money, they can go off into the market and get what they want um, as, as they need it, as opposed to having to accept, you know, via a ration card, a particular input from a particular dealer, which creates lots of different forms of perverse incentives. So just giving people money won't necessarily overturn market relations, which is, which is a much more important task and a much larger task but will at least offer some people uh, a degree of freedom just by virtue of having money power that they otherwise wouldn't have. I'll stop there and, and let folks ask questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for that, uh, that response. Um, I don't know, Anne, if you want to make any brief comments before we move on to question. Okay, so we'll move on to a question by, um, by Katerina Lenner. Um, Hi Anne, I wonder how, based on your analytical framework, you would interpret the fact that the economic participation rate of Syrian women is relatively low. Hello, thanks for the question. I think that's a great question. Um, I wonder whether the official statistics of economic participation rates capture the real economic participation of um, women, refugee women, and I think that's a particularly interesting question in agriculture. Um, first, because agriculture is family work. So for the people we surveyed, um, in many cases, the father is not the only person working in agriculture. Women also work in agriculture, um, but they tend to do so. Some work in, women work full-time jobs. Many work on an on-off basis, and often their um, salary is paid to the head of household. So just because you work and you get paid doesn't mean you get paid personally. And it often means that women's income just goes into the general household income. Um, so that's, um, but as all of this is informal, I'm wondering whether women's actual um, participation in agriculture, um, in agriculture is sufficiently acknowledged. And I think in many, what we see in many places in the Middle East and what I'm actually also just seeing here in, in Tunisia is that agricultural work tends to be hugely feminized, right? So for, for instance, 
for Syrian refugees in Lebanon, for example, the people we talk to who work in the Bekaa Valley, they work in teams where women are vastly in the majority. I guess the other interesting um, question is um, what um, contribution women, what unpaid contribution women make to re socially reproducing this kind of agricultural labor, because of course women might be working on, on of um, labor on the fields, but they also um, clean the tent or the apartment, they prepare the food that is being taken to the tents, to the fields, they um, take part of the children, sometimes they take the children to the fields. We heard of stories where women, especially inside Syria, literally give birth or miscarry on fields. So my sense is that women are hugely working in Middle Eastern agriculture, but that's just under the radar, as much of this kind of employment is. Yes, um, yeah. Katerina had sort of some of the things that you've outlined in the rest of her question. Is it, um, is it, uh, is this put down to their reproductive labor and the lack of alternatives? Um, and also, is it a question of measurement? But I think you've, um, you've, 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 you've well covered, you've well covered those. Just like to invite people to put questions in the Q&A and, and I have a question. Um, can I just add one thing to the gender question? Yeah. I didn't have time to expand on um, in my talk. One really interesting question is one thing we're trying to measure is whether female and child labor increased during the pandemic as opposed to before the pandemic in our study sample. The interesting thing is we found that, no, we found that before and after and during the pandemic, roughly 40% of women and 16% 16 of children from these refugee households were working in agriculture. We think that doesn't mean that people did not get so poor, they had to send every available person to the fields. What we think is what happened is that the families we surveyed were so poor, they were living so precarious before the pandemic that many families, every possible potential worker was already working at the start of the pandemic. So that might be another indication. I think it would be too quick to just conclude that, for example, child labor was not an issue for the study population. It very much is, as is female labor. Um, but for these people, as I've been trying to show, um, the pandemic was not some major disruption. It just exacerbated um, problematic continuities, things that were already going on in their lives. Thank you. Um, I had a question which was sort of around um, the connections that they continue to have with Syria and also um, the, the money that they're earning. Do they, um, do they just use it for their own um, use or do they send some of the money back? And if so, how does, how does that work? So they have, they maintain strong relations to Syria these relations are often personal and it's often the relationship with the Shawish, with the intermediary. So one thing we saw is that especially for Lebanon and for Northern Syria, you have entire groups of workers and workers' families who used to work with the same intermediary before the conflict and have now moved with the same intermediary to new locations. So especially for Lebanon, some people have been working with their Shawish for like the last 10, 15 years. They used to come to the same places and now they have all returned together. Um, as have now all returned together as refugees. So there's this still strong personal connection to their pre-war lives and migrations in Syria and beyond. Um, the question of remittances is a thorny one. Most people, our impression was that most people did not receive remittances because that's a question that was included in the interview tool. Um, 
some people um, themselves mentioned they were still sending remittances to Syria. So that's particularly relevant for people outside Syria right now. Across study countries, um, those in the worst and the most precarious um, situation tend to be Syrian refugees in Lebanon, at least in the sample. And we think that's also just um, related to the overall economic crisis in Lebanon, which again predated the COVID-19 crisis, but was then exacerbated by the pandemic. But there is definitely still money sending going on. Okay, thank you. Um, and if I can just follow um, follow up as well with another question in that you mentioned, um, of course, how uh, food import dependent the Middle East is and um, um, and also, um, for example, uh, the stunning figure that Lebanon is at 90% dependent on the import of cereals and I know um, many many MENA countries continue um, to be so. Are they, what, uh, what, are they, what are they involved? What um, are they involved in, in, um, in cereals? Or is it mostly sort of the more kind of cash crops, um, uh, seasonal, seasonal crops too? So I think my answer to this um, is a bit specific to the moment of data collection because we collected data in autumn and in winter 2020-2021, which means they were not involved in like say cereal collection, but more like say potato farming, um, garlic, pepper, the olive harvest. So whatever was um, was growing was being harvested at that very moment, but that might change. What we also know is that um, in some situations, um, refugees move inside host countries um, with agricultural seasons. So for example, in Turkey, we were able to document migration circuits between say the citrus harvest I mentioned that ha happens in Western circuit, Western Turkey in winter, and then more the pistachio harvest that happens in the autumn in the fall in, or the olive harvest that happens in the South of Turkey. So refugees might actually be involved in more than one agricultural economy. And that's important because it makes it really difficult to estimate their income um, because all of these agricultural subsectors may have different pay modes. Sometimes people are paid per day, sometimes they are paid by weight, sometimes the entire family is paid together, sometimes people are paid individually, sometimes men and women and children earn the same, sometimes they have they are paid differently. So these people might be subject to different payment modes across the agricultural year. Wow, <laughs> so yeah it's quite complex and uh, the social relations that you're showing um, and the continued movement and mobility is quite remarkable. Um, I'm aware that we're, we're running short of time. And so if anyone would like to ask a, a, a last question, um, please put it in the chat. Otherwise um, I will sort of continue and perhaps sort of also ask a question to, okay, Neil. <laughs> I, I cheekily have one if I may. Um, I wanted to hear a bit more about debt. Um, you mentioned debt um, and, and particularly debt in relation to intermediaries, which was super interesting to me. We obviously know that debt is very, very important in um, kind of cementing uh, relations of unfreedom or relations of exploitation and domination. Um, and, and at the same time, you acknowledge, um, and it's clear from your, your research, that these intermediaries have this very um, sort of conflicted positionality even where they are on the one hand like providing support and and potentially exploiting um did you did you have any material from um those who are providing advances and therefore kind of 
critical in, in those who receive advances from them accumulating debt. Um, and any sense from them about how they understand the provision of advances and, and, and what that means for how we interpret debt and their role in debt creation and unfreedom. So obviously our sample of intermediaries is much smaller because it's only 20 people. And again, they work across different agricultural economies. But what we did ask them is how they get the money from the employer and how this money is then paid off um, to, the, to the workers. And what's interesting here is, um, is actually the complicated financial constructs these intermediaries are in. And one thing that's really striking in the ethnographic data is intermediaries are constantly keeping ledgers. They constantly use cards, right? Because it's so difficult to keep track of all these transactions. So for example, the employer, so intermediaries do not often do not get the entire money upfront for the entire season because employers, especially small scale, like landowners, they don't have the money either. So, so intermediaries themselves will get an advance from the employer, which they then use to give an advance um, to the workers, um, yeah. which will then be deducted from workers' salaries throughout the season. But at the same time, um, intermediaries also pay for the transport costs. That's really important because maintenance costs for cars and fuel costs have really soared during mm -hmm. the pandemic, right? So actually intermediaries now pay much more um, for getting the workers to the fields and especially at the moment when there was social distancing and they could fit less workers into the buses. Yeah. Um, and one thing I found really surprising is that a lot of these intermediaries, they end up being in debt or they, for them that ends up being a losing game as well. We're in a bad <coughs> agricultural year, they lose money. They don't go out of this with a net profit. I'm so glad that you, to, to hear you respond to this and to, well, I'm sad to hear that and find it terribly interesting because what it points to, to me at least is um, that, you know, the, again, the way in which debt bondage is typically discussed and the, the provider, the immediate provider of the loan is typically constructed as um, basically a predatory lender, someone who is lending specifically in order to either begin or entrench relations of domination. Actually, they themselves are also embedded within this wider structure of indebtedness and just-in-time payments and not enough payment, which ultimately transfers responsibility back up the supply chain recognizing the price setters sit at the very top and the small scale farmer will only receive themselves possibly subsequent to an advance uh, when it comes to the inputs for their crop in the first place so there's a sort of a cycle of debt um, and a cycle of uh, of resources which are concentrated up here not flowing down um again pointing to just the fact that ultimately the, the entire system is rotten and those who happen to be doing potentially rotten things at the bottom look less rotten when you look at where they are from a system perspective. Yeah, and just to add, I mean, this also is true if you go one step further up, the kind of employers and field owners we talk to are not mm -hmm. large scale capitalists. They're usually mm -hmm. small scale field owners, right? And it's the same situation for them. They end up, they very much struggle every year to like end up with the net plus, right? Um, so it's not just they consciously just, um, they're not all evil exploiters, right? They're also themselves very much struggling to maintain okay. their business, maintain an existence. We found exactly the same things in Italy. So, Carol, if we have one more minute left, can I ask a question back to Neil? Okay. Um, so, Neil, one thing I've been struggling with a lot, or I've been thinking about a lot, we see so many parallels between migrant refugee work and agriculture around the world, and and in economies which seem to be constructed in similar ways. Then, is there anything that's specific to the refugee experience? Oh, that's a great question. Is there anything that is specific to the refugee experience? Hmm. Or are they just another type of very vulnerable migrant worker? 
My instinct in pretty boring academic fashion is that it depends and it will depend on the context because the, the specificity of any given context um, will, will determine ultimately the extent to which one's status or not as a refugee uh, maps onto vulnerability in social relations more broadly, but within the labor market. I can imagine contexts in which being a refugee is, is an experience that is so fraught and so violent that your vulnerability is sort of like at the very end of the scale. When I compare the location of my research in Southern Italy, which was also with, with a mixture of migrant workers who had some form of status and those who are uh, awaiting status and those who, have, who are recognized as refugees and your work um, or those with whom you've worked, I see very few differences to be perfectly frank with you. Um, so I think depending on the level at which you theorize, and if you are theorizing um, adverse incorporation more broadly within global supply chains and the ways in which different groups of bodies um, either, either can or cannot access their rights, um, then, then the, 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 the refugee populations with whom you've studied and the populations of migrant workers across Southern Europe, across the Southern United States, they are subject to similar structural constraints on their freedom. And, and therefore, to that extent, I find myself asking the same question to how much does it matter whether one is a refugee? Can the insights that we have from, from different loci of research be applied? Uh, and if so, what differences are there? I'm not sure how many there are, to be perfectly frank. My, my instinctual response is these are very, very coterminous with obvious caveats around the micro differences that matter when it comes to different contexts. Thank you very much. And I think um, after that very stimulating discussion and thought provoking um, sort of lecture and response and uh, the questions that we've, we've sort of shared together, I'd just like to thank you um, both for, um, for the lecture and for the response and the, and the global perspectives and reflections that you've brought bringing also sort of recent, recent events um, sadly in the English channel and sort of putting a, a broader context on, on what refugees and migrants are um, experiencing. And I'd like to thank um, our audience as well for joining us today and, and we hope you've enjoyed this event and uh, really please do look out for future events uh, at CBRL that are announced on our website. Um, we have a whole back catalogue on, on YouTube, CBRL video, please like and subscribe. Um, and um, yes, I can see also in, our, in the chat, please sign up to our mailing list as, as well. And we hope to see you at another CBRL webinar soon. Thank you very much, everybody, and good night. Thank you.